Good morning. <laughs> nice suit. Thanks, Phil. You've been waiting ever since that day you walked down the front, haven't you? All righty. How's everyone doing this morning? Good, good, good. Good to see you here. Good to see you here instead of out like uh, Dave said, out on the freeway somewhere. I ran across an epitaph I thought would be interesting. It's uh, somewhat appropriate. It read simply this. Died, age 30. Buried, age 60. <laughs> think it through for a second. I know it's a long weekend, but you've got plenty of time to think about it. Died, age 30. Buried, age 60. How appropriate for so many of us. Isn't it sad to think that, you know, while many of us are at an age where we should just be running around tearing up the track, you know, that mummification has already set in? It's interesting because I came across an article, consider this for a second, an article that I came across that was entitled, Advice to a Bored Young Man. It communicated how much one person could contribute if only they had the desire to do something. How many of you know who invented the bifocal? Who? Ben Franklin. And how old was he, sir, when he did that? I have no idea. Hey, don't, don't push it, right? <laughs> I got you one good one. That's all you're getting out of me here today. Okay. How old was he? Anybody? 79. 79 years old. Now think about it. There's probably a reason he invented them. How about the printing press? Who harnessed it? to produce printing. Gutenberg, okay. How old was he? 112. Yeah, boy, he just kept on ticking, didn't he? Ivy League universities, Ben Franklin, age 45. The US male, the father of the United States male. Now, I'm not sure if he even wants anybody to know this or not. Ben Franklin, age 31. First fire department, Ben Franklin, age 31. Busy year. Lightning rod, that's because someone burned down this first post office, is probably what <laughs> Heating stove, Ben Franklin, age 36. Lightning rod, Ben Franklin, age 43. Ben Franklin spoke, five and, spoke and wrote five different languages. He was a diplomat, he was a printer, he was a publisher, he was an advocate of paratroopers from balloons 100 years before airplanes were even invented. And all this he continued to do until the age of 84. Now I don't know about you, but I read a list like that and I just kind of go, wow, what a guy. What a guy. Can you imagine? I mean, this guy was incredible. But then I also think about... You know, like a young mother of four kids, it, you know, it's 11 o'clock before she even gets out of her pajamas. You know, you know what I'm saying? It could be pretty frustrating at times. We, we are in the, in the midst of such a situation. In fact, I was down here drinking the water. I was going to go, I guess, boo, because <laughs> that's the kind of week we're having. Um, <laughs> we, are, we are babysitting for friends who went on a belated honeymoon, and they have two children age 13 months and four years. And it's testing this whole choose and joy thing. <laughs> but, but the point is, you kind of go, man, I'm telling you, they're just all over the place. It's better take them for a walk than chase them around the house. Although I'm a little worn out. But hey, not as much as I was hoping they'd be worn out. But anyway, 
the, the reality of all of it is, is you know, it's kind of like you read about Ben Franklin, you go, what a great role model, what a great example, wouldn't it be wonderful to be like that, you know, and, and wouldn't it be wonderful if some, you know, our epitaph didn't read, died age 30, buried age 60, and all this stuff goes on and on, but you know what, sometimes it's just hard to conquer bedtime when you got little kids around the house, yet alone invent something, create something. Some of us don't even have time to read about the fact that Ben Franklin invented these things yet alone go out and try to invent and create and to do something. And so I guess the point is, is that, I like what Mark Twain said, he said this, few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. <laughs> I like that. Few things in life are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. Nothing gets you sick worse than seeing a good example before you. And then think, how am I going to live up to that? You know, I, I was thinking about all of this because in our last session, if you've got your Bibles open to Philippians chapter 2, but in this last session that we did, we learned that we are commanded, that we are commanded to have the same attitude in us that was also in Christ Jesus, whose attitude was one of humility. His attitude was basically, in a nutshell, that he considered others, meaning us, as more important than himself. And we are commanded to have the same attitude in ourself that was in Him. So He's our role model. He's our example. He's, he's what we need to shoot for as far as how we are to live our life. And, and then you go through this list of all the things that we talked about, how He left heaven and He came to earth, all the glory of heaven and all that went along with it. He left that position to come here to earth. How, you know, here he was and he emptied himself and he subjected himself and he limited, had self-limitations on his deity, on the things that he could do and had the prerogative to do and how he laid those things aside, considering others more important than himself. How he took on the form of a bond servant. How he came to serve. I remember once where he was talking to his disciples and he said this, he said, you know what, even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but he came to serve. And he came to give his life a ransom for many. Even God himself in human flesh didn't come to be served. But he came to serve and to give. And this attitude we're to have in ourselves that was also in Christ. He came in the likeness of a man. He took on the form of a bondservant. He came as a blue-collar worker. You know, he could have come as a king. He could have come and the whole world could have bowed to his coming. But he came in the appearance of a man and he humbled himself and he took on the form of a carpenter. And he was a blue-collar worker. He was one of us. He was out there making a living like we have to make a living. He was out there going through all the trials and tribulations that we went through. And yet in him there was no sin. He's our perfect example of humility, our perfect example in every area. And he, was, he humbled himself and he was obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. And I, and I read this, and I realize when I share that, that we're to have this attitude in ourselves that was also in Christ. And I sit there and go, you know what? That seems a little tough. No, actually, it seems impossible. To me, it seems impossible to be like Jesus. You know, they talk about being like Mike, and I mentioned that, being like Michael Jordan. You know what? But think about it for a second. How many people have, you know, a 68-inch vertical leap? <laughs> I mean, you know, I love the commercial. You ever see the one where he goes flying up to dunk the basketball and he hangs onto the rim and he looks down and it's like, you know, 16 stories below? You know, and, and the commercial is, I know, I want to be like Mike. Well, good luck. I got a six-inch vertical leap. 
I can't be like Mike. You know, I want to be like Ben Franklin. Hey, you know what? I can't be like Ben Franklin. Because the problem with our role models and the problem with people that are our examples is that, you know what? They don't enable us to be like them. It's a good goal to shoot for, but you know what? There is no more Ben Franklin left over for any of us. Michael Jordan's Michael Jordan, and there ain't nothing to him to go around either. And so you look at this and you begin to realize that, you know what? Our role models and our examples, though they are to be our examples and role models, in many cases don't enable us to accomplish the things that we'd like to accomplish. But you know what's wonderful, and I, I guess that's the bad news, but the good news is this. If we're to be like Jesus, which we are commanded to be like him, how's it even possible? Well, it's possible because he enable us, enables us to be like him. It's possible because he helps us to be like him. It's possible because in John 16, Jesus said, I'm going to my Father, but you know what? Don't even worry about it because because I'm going, I'm going to send my helper to you. And he will give you strength. And he will give you courage. And he will enable you to become just like me. See, while the rest of our role models, whether they're statesmen or presidents or inventors or novelists or artists or athletes or whatever, whoever our role model or, or, or example may be, there's not enough of them to go around and they can't enable us to be like them as much as we'd like to. But when it comes to being like Jesus, he says, don't worry about it because I'll enable you, I'll give you the power, I'll give you the strength, I'll give you the ability to be just like me. And there's the big difference. See, some of us are shooting to be like Jesus, but we don't understand how. We get frustrated in trying, and we say, well, I can't, I can't be like him. He's God. He's perfect. Look at that. How am I going to be like that? And yet he commands us to be just like him. Now, think about this for a moment. If God commands us to have the same attitude in ourselves that was also in Christ, if it wasn't possible, then God would be lying to us. And he's not like a man. He doesn't lie. He can't frustrate us by saying, do something you can't do. He's not trying to give us a goal that we'll never be able to hit. He's saying, be like me because you can be like me, and I'll give you the strength to be just like me. And so that's basically where we're at. And what I want you to do is turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, if you're not there, and we'll pick up where we left off in chapter 2, starting with verse 12. In chapter 2, starting with verse 12, we see that you know, Paul shares with us in this particular passage that there's joy in a balanced life. There's joy in a balanced life. There's joy in understanding the truth of what God has to say, but also understanding how we can go about living this life that he says we're to live. And there's, and there's joy in that. And in Philippians 2, starting with verse 12, we read this. He says, so then, and that's a connective thought, therefore or so then has to do with what we just talked about. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may, not I may have cause to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor let toil in vain. 
He says, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with all of you. And you too, I urge, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. As we go down through this, basically there's three things that we're going to take a look at. The first one is that he's telling us that we need to balance our purpose in life with the power or the ability to live it. Balancing purpose and power. First of all, understand something, because this is where many of us get in trouble when we're going through the Bible. We start to read it, and we don't really pay attention to what it's saying. We come up with our own thoughts and conclusions, and, and, and we, and we kind of run with it. But it's important to understand. He's saying, so then, or therefore, because of what he just shared with you about the obedience of Christ, about his attitude of putting other people uh, and considering them more important than himself, he says this, so then, my beloved... Just as you also obeyed, not as my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And we read that and we go, oh man, see that there's work involved in salvation. There's work involved in being right with God. But it's important to realize who's he writing to? The term my beloved or my brethren or little children or loved ones uh, is a term that's used of endearment and has to do with a relationship. So it's important to recognize, first of all, what he's saying is this. So then, my beloved, or so then, fellow believers, or so then, those of you who have already put your faith and trust in Christ, or so then, you child of God, or so then, you little children, or whatever, what he's saying is this. I'm talking specifically to a group of people who have come to a point in their life where they've believed that Jesus Christ died for their sins. They believe all the things that we shared in our last session that He was God, that He became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, and He was full of grace and truth. We saw that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw that, you know, that He gave up these prerogatives or limited Himself for the purpose of becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, for the forgiveness of the sins of this world, for those who would believe that and accept that. For those of us who have put our faith and trust and say, I believe that Jesus did that for me, and I believe that that and that alone is what makes me right with God. I believe when I received Him, him, I became a child of God to those who believed in his name. Nothing else. Not coming to church, not reading the Bible, not giving stuff up, not giving money anywhere, not giving up drinking, not giving up running around and, and, and cheating and stealing and lying. It was that and that alone, period, nothing else. When I put my faith and trust in Christ, I became a child of God, plus nothing. He's saying now to you people and to me, I want you to know something about how you can be like Jesus. And he goes on and he says this. He says, you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's joy in understanding our purpose, and there's joy in understanding the power that God gives us to enable us to meet that purpose in life. The words that he uses, work out your salvation, is a term that's used for a farmer who is to go into the field and work out a crop out of the ground, who's to take something that's already there and work hard and toil hard and be diligent and produce something that has value. It's also a word that's used of a miner who goes into a mine and the ore is already there or the precious mineral is already there or the precious metal is already there or whatever is already there and it's a matter of going in and harvesting it and working it. And so the point is this, for those who read something like this and say, see that, you know what, it's not just grace that we're saved through faith. I mean, it's our works too. We've got to work our way to heaven. 
Somehow we've got to please God and we're going to have to work hard. And the point is this. You can't work something out that isn't already been worked in. You follow that? You cannot work something out that has already been worked in. And what I'm saying to you is this. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away, all things become new. If you, are, if you are in Christ, or literally, Christ is in you, then He can be worked out of your life and produce something of value and something that's precious. But He's the one that's already in. It's just a matter of some of us allowing Him to work His way out. Some of us are stubborn. Some of us are boneheaded people. Some of us like to do the things that we like to do when we're hanging on to those things, and as a result, we're not allowing Him to work His way out in our life. So the point that He's making is this. We need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, not that we will be saved, not that we will be right with God. We're already right with God because Jesus made us right with Him when we believed Him. But the point is this, is that we need to work our way out or work this salvation out. Why? For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for whose pleasure? For His good pleasure. See, some of us are really messed up when it comes to what our purpose is here in life. There's no joy because we've lost track of our purpose. Some of us think that our purpose is to be a good husband. And it may be a purpose. To be a good father. It may be a purpose. To be a good wife. To be a good mother. To be a good business person. To, uh, to be a good citizen. Uh, to be a good parent. To be a good athlete. To be a good uh, a student. All those things, I, I, those are, that's my purpose in life. No, that's not your purpose in life, and it's not my purpose in life. It's a purpose in life that may not even be a bad purpose in life. But the reason so many of us get so confused and frustrated and have no joy in our life is because we've lost sight of the purpose in life. And the purpose in life is what? To please God in all that we do. So if my purpose is to be a good husband... I'll be a good husband if I'm pleasing God in the process. I'll be a good parent if I'm pleasing God in the process. I'll be a good business person if I'm pleasing God in the process. I'll be a good athlete if I'm pleasing God in the process. I'll be a good student if I'm pleasing God in the process. I'll be good at these things and excellent at these things if I haven't lost sight of the fact that it's my responsibility primarily to live a life that's pleasing to God. And you say, but it's hard to live a life that's pleasing to God. I say, it's not hard. It's impossible. It's impossible on your own. And that's why you get all frustrated and discouraged. See, God's purpose is that we live to please Him. Now, here's the problem with most of us. Okay, God wants me to live to please Him. I'm going to just, I'm going to, I'm just, oh man, I'm going to gut it out. We're going to church today because it'll please God. Except for all of you who are gone that we'll send a copy of this tape to who are out on the river saying, hey, I'm glad we're under grace and not under works. <laughs> but see, that's the way it is, see? And, and it's like, oh, I want to please God. Oh, I'm going to try to please God. Okay, I'm going to love my wife like, I'm gonna like I love myself. Oh, this is so hard. Okay, I'm going to be honest in my business. Oh, man, right now would be a good time to cheat. Oh, man, I, 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 I'm going to be uplifting in the things I say. Oh, now would be a good time to swear. 
Oh, oh, this is too hard. It's not hard, it's impossible. And that's why we get so frustrated. You know what? You and I cannot live a life that's pleasing to God. It's impossible, don't even try, and when you try, all you do is get miserable. You say, well, how do we do it? Hey, here's how we do it, right here. You balance your purpose in life, which is to please God, with the power that God will give you to do it. And that is this. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. How? For it is God who works in you. It's God who works in you. You know what one of the greatest secrets of joy is in this life? To get to the point where you recognize it's impossible to live a life that's pleasing to God, to throw up your hands and say, God, I can't do this anymore. I want you to love this person through me. I want you to convict me of what's right and wrong, and then I'll just obey. See, God gives us the ability to do it. Our struggle is we don't like to do what he wants us to do. But he'll give us the power to do it. He'll give us the strength to do it. He'll convict us of what's right and wrong. That's the Holy Spirit. His role is to help us understand right and wrong. And so when you're going to lie or cheat or steal or do something that's wrong, the Holy Spirit says to you, hey, now if you're a child of God, listen, that's not a good thing to do. In fact, you shouldn't do that at all. And I'll help you if you want. And we go, nah, I, I can do this myself. No, no, you can't. And that's why we fail miserably, and that's why we get discouraged, and we get defeated, and we have no joy in our life. But God says he'll do it for you. He will do things that you think are absolutely impossible to do if we just surrender, give it up, and say, okay, you do it. I can't do it anymore. You know, there's a bumper sticker. I've seen it, and it's kind of, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, could gag you after a while. But if you understand what's being said, you know, there's some, there's some real sound theological information there. But that's the sticker, the bumper sticker says, let go, let God. Now, you know, you see that and you just kind of go, ugh. But then when you stop to think about it, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. Let go of trying to work your way to heaven. Let go of trying to please God in every way that you can. And just let God work his way out of your life by just being obedient to what he wants you to do. Just, just that's it. Faith alone saves, but faith without works is dead, the Bible says. See, our problem is this. When you put your faith and trust in Christ and you believe that he died for your sins, the only way that anybody else even knows that that's happened in your life is when this faith, this valuable resource, works itself out in the way you live your life. How do we know that Jesus had an attitude of humility? How do we know that Jesus really considered others more important than himself? I'll tell you how I know. He demonstrated it in his actions. How do I really know that I become a child of God? I'll tell you how I'll know. Not only does God's spirit bear witness with my spirit, but the reason I'll know is because it's going to work itself out in the way I live my life. It's going to become evident to other people. Hey, there's something different about this guy. There's something different about this gal. There's something going on in their life, and it's working its way out, and it's producing something of value. It has nothing to do with working your way to heaven. It has to do with recognizing the fact that God is at work in us and he wants to do his will and his purpose and he'll give you the power to do it. That's what it's all about. That's a wonderful truth, you know, but the conflict, like I said, is that so many of us want to do our own thing, which leads to the second point. And that is this, there's joy in balancing our attitude and our action. Look at verses 14 through 16. We read this, do all things without grumbling or disputing. 
so that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Balancing our attitude and our actions. You know, first of all, there's a, there's a negative and there's a positive. Let me start with the negative first. You want to know why so many of us don't have any joy in our life? And we make sure the people around us don't have any joy in our life. You know why? Because we complain about everything. We complain about everything. And understand, there's two different thoughts here. Let's take the first one first. Complaining or grumbling. That's something we do all by ourselves. That's when you tell your kid to take the garbage out. And you hear all the way out the door. It's not like we're not telling you to take it out to a landfill 72 miles away. We're telling you to walk around the side of the house, which is about 57 feet. It's always taking the garbage out. She's not doing anything. What's she doing over there? Sitting there, she's just sitting there over there. She's just coloring is all she's doing. Yeah, taking the garbage. Thank you. We're taking it out. <laughs> you know, and it's like, man, you know what's so funny? And, it's, and it doesn't get any bigger. I mean, better the bigger we get. The older we get. Tell somebody to do something at the office. Okay. And then they're around the corner. Man, alive. I, I are people moaning and groaning about everything. Oh, man, got to get up. Oh, man. Oh, got to get up. Hey, you got to be glad you can get up. Yeah, get up. Oh, I gotta get up. I gotta, gotta get up and go to work. Hey, you're working. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I hate people like you. And nothing worse than annoyance of a good example. Uh, you know, we always looking at the bright side. Yeah, well, you know what? It really changes the way we look at life when we do. You talk about choosing joy. It's our attitude. We grumble about everything. Oh man, I'm hungry. Oh, what am I gonna eat? Oh, we're gonna eat. Wait, 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 wait. And then you eat. Oh man, I'm so full. Oh man, I, oh, oh, I can't. I'm never gonna eat. Oh, I'm never gonna eat again. Oh, okay. Two hours later, hey, what's to eat? Oh, man, does it ever get old to anybody else but me? Oh my gosh, we complain about everything. We come to church, we complain. There's always something to complain about. Oh, I don't like this, don't like that, don't like that. You know, and you go, do everything without complaining. Now, arguing is when we involve other people. We bring somebody else into the whole thing. And then you get a big old argument going, disputing. Oh, argue, argue, dispute, all that, blah, blah, blah. Hey, you know what? I don't know about you, but when you complain and when you argue, there's not a whole lot of joy being manifested in your life. I mean, you agree? I mean, it's amazing to me how easy it is to fall into that. I like what this guy writes, J.B. Priestley. His own omission, he says this. He says, you know, I've always been a grumbler. I'm designed for the part. Sagging face, weighty underlip, rumbling, resonant voice. Money couldn't buy a better grumbling outfit than this. Man, you know what? How many of you are Some of us are like, hey, you know what? That's uh, my spiritual gift. Yeah, right there, somewhere in Second Opinions, Chapter 2, right there, it is, right there. I just, you know what, 
It was interesting, you know, it's like, you know, we're so pessimistic. Talk about dual joy stealers or joy bandits, man. Grumbling or complaining and arguing are probably two of the most, <laughs> the most common joy stealers in our life today. But here's, <clears throat> following what's going on with uh, Brett Butler, you know, and the cancer that he has. And, uh, you know, Brett Butler is probably one of the most optimistic people that you'll ever meet. And like he said, when you're five feet two and you weigh 89 pounds and you're a freshman in high school, and you don't make your, your, your varsity baseball team until you're a senior, and then you tell your coach you're going to walk on at Arizona State and play baseball, and he laughs at you, and then you go on to play for 16 years in the major leagues, he goes, you know what, you've got a good feel that God can do anything he wants to do whenever he wants to do it and do it with anybody he'd like to. So he's a pretty optimistic guy. Now, he says his wife, on the other hand, Evelyn, is a little more pessimistic. But uh, she doesn't call it pessimism. She calls it being a realist. <laughs> so... Now, I'm speaking specifically to all you realists out there today. Stop complaining. Stop grumbling. Man, are you pessimistic and negative? And listen to this. I love this story. If you're pessimist, if you're negative, if you want to complain and moan about everything, listen to this. Barry Siegel writes this in the Los Angeles Times. It's an article he entitled, World May End with a Splash. This is what he writes. Alarmists? Worrying about such matters as nuclear holocaust and pesticide poisoning may be overlooking much more dire catastrophes. Consider what scientists predict. If everyone keeps stacking National Geographics in garages and attics instead of throwing them away, the magazine's weight will sink the continent 100 feet sometime soon and we will be inundated by the oceans. If the number of microscopic specimen slides submitted to one St. Louis hospital laboratory continues to increase at its current rate, that city will be buried under three feet of glass by the year 2024. If beachgoers keep returning home with as much sand clinging to them as they do now, 80% of the country's coastline will disappear in 10 years. It's also been reported that pickles cause cancer communism, airline tragedies, tragedies, auto accidents, and crime waves. Consider these facts. 99.9% .9 of cancer victims have eaten pickles sometime in their lives. So have 100% of all soldiers. 96.8% of the communist sympathizers have eaten pickles, and 99.7% of those involved in a car and air accident have eaten pickles at one time or another. Moreover, moreover, those born in 1839 who ate pickles have suffered 100% mortality rate. <laughs> I did. He said, and rats force-fed 20 pounds of pickles a day for a month ended up with bulging abdomens and a loss of appetite. You know, we got some serious stuff to consider in the world we live in today. You know, it's, it's crazy. You know, you think some of this stuff is crazy, but isn't that the way that complaining and grumbling and disputing really are? I want you to stop and think about something. Think about the last argument that you had in your home. How, I mean, what was it over? How serious of an issue is it? As serious as pickles? Sand? Nuclear holocaust? I mean, we go through this often, you know, when we talk in, in like marriage series and stuff about the things that just drive you nuts about your spouse, but think about it. How really important are some of those things? We need to recognize the fact that, you know what, we're to do everything without complaining, without arguing. We're to pick and choose our battles, you know, to what's important in life and just lay aside all the rest of the things. 
We're going to have the grace that we can agree to disagree agreeably and realize that all of us are different. We all have different tastes. We all have different preferences. We all have different desires. But you know what? Some things are important in life and some things just flat aren't. We need to get to the point where we stop complaining and grumbling about everything. And that's the negative side of it, you know? The, the negative side is stop whining. We're doing a project, my partner and I are doing a project, where, and, and it's hilarious because it's a church. We're putting air conditioning in a church in, in, a, in another city with other people that no one here knows, okay? <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and it's been amazing to me. The architect hates the mechanical engineer. The mechanical engineer hates the architect. We're in the middle trying to resolve a problem, and they can't stand each other. And all they do is they, they, they fax each other to death. You know, they, they get this war going on. Instead of launching missiles, they launch in faxes, you know. And we need to get in the middle, and we need to sort it all out. We need to try to resolve it. And all we're trying to do is just resolve it. But they want to just keep whining and moaning about how incompetent each one of them are. And nothing's getting done because of it. And these people are never going to move into this church. And you get to the point of saying, you know, don't you ever get tired of whining and moaning? We need a big old just a no whining sign. You know, put it on your refrigerator at home. You know, do yourself a big favor today. Go home, if you've got, you got a young child or you're very artistic or whatever, draw up a big old sign. Just, just put a whining, big whining in the middle of it with a big circle over it and a big red slash through the middle of it, hanging on your refrigerator, and then watch the joy explode in your home. <laughs> Some of you be like, but we don't know what we're going to talk about then. Well, start all over again. If the only time you talk to each other is to whine about something, no wonder no one's in a hurry to come home and be with each other. Think about it. I'm being serious for a second. <laughs> for, a, for, for a second. But, man, I mean, gee whiz, you know what? I mean, you want to change your relationships with other people, stop whining. You see some whiner coming, you just want to go, Whoa! and run the other way. It gets old after a while. And it's important to recognize that the negative thing is stop whining and complaining. But the positive thing is this, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. Look what he's saying. Here, you know what he's saying? Prove that you're different. You want to work the salvation out that's within you? One of the most valuable resources that's going to come out of your relationship with the Lord is this. You will prove that you're different from everybody else in the world when you stop complaining about everything, when you stop trying to dispute with everyone, and you prove yourself blameless. Not perfect, but you're not hypocritical that you're innocent of any charges of wrongdoing before God. That you are, the third thing he says is that you are above reproach. And then he says this, and that you'll be a light. You'll be a shining star. Oh my goodness. Let it shine. Let it blaze. You want to be different? Stop complaining. Stop arguing. Stop in, start encouraging people. Start building people up. Stop, start cooperating with one another. I'll tell you what, if that's the kind of lifestyle that you live, people are going to look at you like, what in the world's gotten into you? And it's not what in the world's gotten into me, it's who's gotten into me. 
and that's Jesus himself. See, you know what? We lose so much of our effectiveness in this world that has no joy and no hope because most of us are moaning and groaning and complaining just like everybody else. Somehow losing sight of the fact that God is in control, losing sight of the fact that we have nothing to complain about, we have nothing to grumble about, we have nothing to dispute with anybody else about because we know God is absolutely 100% positively in control of every circumstance and situation in life. And as a result, we see God at work where other people don't. Other people see man trying to manipulate one another, and we see God behind the scenes. Other people see, and they're not getting their way, they're not getting their rights, they're not getting their privileges, they're getting ripped off, they're getting robbed, they're getting everything that you can imagine, and we don't see that at all, and we have hope because we see God is totally in control of everything. I'll tell you what, you want to start shining in a world, then we need to get to the point where we stop complaining and disputing everything that comes up in life. And that's a tough lesson. Because most of us, we know we live in a world, just like the Bible says, that's a crooked and depraved generation. We live in a world of chronicle groaners. We live in a world of people that are whiners by nature because they have no hope. We live in a world that will dispute with one another in a second because of sin nature that lives within them and rages out of control. That's the world that we live in. But we don't have to be like that. You know why? Because my role model, my example, is Jesus Christ. And I looked at him and he didn't grumble. He didn't complain. He didn't hear Jesus moaning on the way down to, the, down to, to Golgotha. He didn't hear him moaning and mumbling about the soldiers that beat him and smacked him and hit him and blindfold him and spit on him. He didn't hear him mumbling up on the cross about, you know, I don't know why I had to do this. I don't know, what, you know why can somebody else do this. Oh, you know, you wait, I'm gonna, you guys are going to get yours. You didn't hear any, you didn't hear any of that. You didn't hear him screaming and yelling from the cross at other people that were insulting him and cursing him and ridiculing him and making fun of his mother and his family and his background and, and his virgin birth and all these things. He didn't do any of that stuff. You didn't see him get in someone's face because, you know, someone got, somebody said something about his sister or his mother or his brother. Somebody walked in front of him on the path to Golgotha and, you know, they cut him off. You didn't see him flipping him off. Hey, you know, I'm going that way. You didn't see any of that. We laugh and snicker, but you know what? I'm trying to make a very serious point. And the very serious point is this. If he is to be our example and he is to be our role model, then he says, you know what? When he was insulted, he didn't insult in return. When he was persecuted, he didn't persecute in return. He didn't, he didn't strike back. But you know what he did? He trusted himself to God who judges righteously. Some of us need to adopt that in the way that we live our life. We need to stop complaining about everything and choose joy and find that thing that we can choose that's joyful in the middle of all of it, knowing that God's in control. Which brings me to the last point, and that's very simply this. He balances seriousness and joy. Man, to balance seriousness and joy. You know, I like that. He says in Philippians 2, 17 and 18, he says, But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, you know what? I'm glad and I rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Don't miss this, the word picture here. He's saying, you know what? Even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering, the drink offering was poured upon the sacrifice. There was a burnt offering that was made in the Old Testament and it was for the forgiveness of sin. There was a drink offering that was poured on top of it, and that drink offering would dissipate, and the aroma would go before God. But the drink offering would dissipate, and you'd see it no more. And what Paul is saying this, you know what? In the most serious moment of my life, when I am being considered to be executed for my faith, 
where I may be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice of the Philippians, and I will dissipate to the point where no one will even remember me anymore. I'll evaporate before God. He says, you know what? I find joy in the midst of all of that. I find joy in the midst of all of that? Wow. Isn't that amazing? That he can find joy in the midst of all of that? And what I'm learning from is this. There are things in life that are very serious. Serious issues. Serious things to consider. Serious actions to be taken. Serious counsel to be obtained. But can I just share something with you? You can still have joy in the middle of all of it. You can still, still choose joy in the midst of all of that. And we can still believe that God is in control. See, because that's what Paul did. Here I am in prison. I may be executed. But man, I'll tell you what. I'm rejoicing with every one of you. I find a joy in all of this. I see, we already know why. Because he saw God was in control. That nothing happened to him without a purpose and a reason. That God was behind everything. And he could sit there and say, this is the greatest thing in the world. And I'm choosing joy because, hey, you know what? It has a lot to do with my attitude. Balancing seriousness and joy. When was the last time you laughed? When was the last time you smiled? And I know why it is. Because some of us are so serious. But don't you see how serious this is? Absolutely. I think it's just as serious as you do. But you know what? I can choose joy in the middle of all of it. Or I can choose to be miserable wrecked because of it. And I'd rather choose joy. I'd rather keep smiling through the middle of all of it. You know why? Because I know God's in control. And this too will come to pass. It's a serious moment. Think about this. I mean, every one of us in our lives and our relationships with one another have gone through some serious moments. Some crossroads moments. Some moments that, man, if you want one direction or the other, could seriously affect your future. We've had it in our marriage. We've had it with our children. We've had it in our business. We've had it in every area of life that I can think of. Some serious moments. But I'll tell you what. As you look back on it, and you realize that those things, too, come to pass, and that God is in control, I wish I would have chosen joy more oftentimes than I did. But I'll guarantee you this. From now on, I will. See, some of us are so serious. I like what one guy writes. He says this, you know what? Some Christians can't enjoy a meal because the world is starving. They can't joyfully thank God for their clothing and shelter because the world is naked and homeless. They're afraid to smile because of the world's sadness. They're afraid to enjoy salvation because of the world's lost ones. They can't enjoy an evening at home with their families because they feel they ought to be out saving souls. They can't spend an hour with an unforgiven one without feeling guilty if they haven't preached a sermon or manifested a sober Christian spirit. They know nothing of balance and they're miserable because of it. They have no inner incentive to bring people into relationship with Christ which would make them feel as miserable as they themselves feel. And they think the gospel is good news only until you obey it and then it becomes an endless guilt trip every day after. There are leisure centers, sports centers, sewing centers, diet centers, entertainment centers, and there are guilt centers. This last group is usually called churches. The endless harping on the string of guilt is part of the reason for all of this gloom and all of this uncertainty. 
And I'm just going to tell you this, from my own personal point of view, that's not for me. That's not for me. I don't want to live in a world so filled with guilt because of everything that's going on that I can't enjoy my relationship with God. I don't want to try to save the world because I can't save the world. Only Jesus could save the world and even there's going to be a portion of people that don't even want that. I can't run everybody else's life. I have a hard enough time just running my own. And you know what's wonderful about it? I'm not even responsible for it. I'm not responsible for your life. I'm not responsible for anybody else's. I'm responsible. My purpose in life is to live a life that's pleasing to God. And the way that I'll be able to do it is to allow God to live his life through me. To just throw up my hands and say, I can't do this, but I know you can, and you enable me to do it. You've given me your spirit to do it. You've given me his strength to do it. You've given, given me a willingness to be obedient. You've given me a willingness to listen to his voice. And you know what? And that's what I intend to do. You see, there, there's joy in a balanced life. And I think we need to understand that there's joy in a balance of our purpose, which is to live a life that's pleasing to God and to realize that we can't do it on our own, but only God can live it through us. The Apostle Paul said it best when he said this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life that I now live in my flesh, I live by my faith in the Son of God who loved me, and he gave himself up for me. See, that was his conclusion. He said, this isn't even me. When you see me live, it's not me. It should be Christ living through me. The balance of purpose and power, there's joy in that. There's joy in a balance of attitude and action. There's joy when we stop complaining and mumbling and groaning about everything in life. And we start lifting each other up and we start building each other up and we start encouraging each other. Man, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only a word that is good for the edification, for the need of that moment that you can give grace to people around you. If you want people to see you shining as a star in the world that God has put you, man, all you need to do is start complimenting people and building people up and people are going to be attracted to you. It's easy to rip people apart. It's easy to be negative. It's easy to see all the mistakes that people make. And I'm just as guilty as anybody. And I'm a sideline coach and a manager, and I can sit and I criticize everything that's going on. He should have made this move. He should have brought in this player. Should have substituted here. Should have pinch hit there. Should have ran there. Should have bunt there. Should have squeezed there. Oh, and they can't see anything. And I realize there's 700 other people sitting right next to me, and they're all saying the same thing, but different times. Oh, I wouldn't have pinch hit there. I would have left him in. He's got a 10-game hitting streak on. Blah, 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 blah. Everybody's got an opinion. And I'm starting to realize, you know what? But not too many people are very positive about their opinions. It's true. We need to be positive. You know, we need to diffuse situations, diffuse harm, disharmony. Hey, you guys say, hey, you know what? Hey, that wasn't a bad call. That wasn't a bad move. That wasn't a bad thing to do, you know, for these reasons. And bring a positive light to things. And stop picking an argument and disputing with people. You know, people are all looking for someone they can just drag down with them. We need to start building people up. Get that no whining sign. Put it on your refrigerator. You don't put it there. Put it right on your front door of your house. And any guest that comes to your house, they're going to have to go there and say, what is that? Well, we're just going to set the record right, straight right now. There's no whining in this house. There's not even any cheese and crackers to go with it. That's it. You want to whine? After you leave, whine all you want. There ain't no whining in this house anymore. Man, wouldn't that be a great place to live? It'd be a great business to work for. Wouldn't that be a great church to go to? Man, I like it. 
And the last thing is balance seriousness and joy. Man, I'm going to tell you this. Even in our most serious moments, we can smile and we can choose joy. And you know why? Because God is in control. Amen? Amen. Amen. Go home. <laughs>